Um, but today we've got Pixie Turner, who's going to be talking about her latest book, uh, which will be available to sign at the back. Uh, we've got David here from the Word Bookshop uh, in New Cross. Um, you can buy that for £16.99, cards and cash accepted, and Pixie will be signing it in the interval and straight after the talk as well. So um, he's only got a few copies, so please do pick one up um, if you enjoy the talk or have any more questions about it. Um, I will now introduce Pixie. Uh, Pixie Turner is a nutritionist, food blogger and science communicator. She graduated with a first class degree in biochemistry and went on to complete a master's in nutrition with distinction. She's been featured as a nutrition expert on the BBC and Channel 5 and in publications such as Red Magazine, Evening Standard, Grazia, The Telegraph and more. Um, her second book, the No Need to Diet book, uh, which we'll be talking about today, was released in March, um, which you can buy now. Um, so uh, today we'll be unpacking why diet and nutrition misinformation is so problematic on social media, mass media and on a public health level, and why we can all benefit from taking a moment to assess our personal relationship with food, expect some myth-busting diet rants and lots of fully referenced evidence-based science. And we have a lovely, warm, comfortable welcome. I've done uh, book talks up and down the country in the last couple of months and it's so nice to actually finally do one in London, which is where I live, so that's really lovely. Um, so yeah, I want to talk um, a little bit about some of the subjects that have kind of come up uh, as I've been researching and writing this particular book which has come out this year. So just a very brief little bit about me, although a lot of it's already been mentioned. I have a master's degree in nutrition and I think this is really important to mention. Because when I say to people I'm a nutritionist, I get quite a mixed reaction, which is very understandable considering that nutrition is not a very well-regulated profession. The title nutritionist is in fact not protected, whereas the title registered nutritionist or registered associate nutritionist, these are protected titles. And so what this means is that I am registered with the Association for Nutrition. Uh, that means I'm held to a very high standard of ethics and it means that if I do something wrong, someone could potentially uh, call me out and uh, can report me and I could be struck off, which would actually be very damaging to my career, so obviously I don't do any of that. Uh, but just to kind of reassure you that I'm not just someone who's done some 30-day online course and thinks they're an expert because I think that's really shit when people do that to us. Um, so I have a private practice, I work completely freelance. Um, I have a private practice both in London but also virtually through Skype because I see clients from around the world from, for a wide variety of nutrition-related issues. And I also work in science communication, and that I do on social media, I do sometimes in the media, I do talks like this, and I write books. So basically I'm trying to get as much accurate nutrition information out to the public as I possibly can, because as we're going to see, there is so, so much misinformation out there. So the question I really want to answer today is, why do humans get so weird around food? Why is it that humans have this very complicated relationship with food? Why is it that in so many areas of life we're so quite, we're quite easily able to be sceptical about things, but when it comes to food, that generally seems to fall by the wayside a lot, a lot quickly, and a lot more quicker than in, in other particular areas. So I want to offer a number of explanations uh, to answer this question, and hopefully by the end of this you'll agree with me on at least some of them. That's kind of, that's the goal here. So the first thing I want to offer is this concept of you are what you eat. Now, we can take this very literally, and if we take it very literally, it makes a lot of sense, and it, it is in fact accurate. 
So the food that we eat does become our various organs and tissues. That is very much how that works. However, we've now very much taken this to a moral level where food has a moral value that is imparted from the food to you as a person through the act of consuming it. And so we see this idea that if you eat good foods, you are therefore a good person. And if you eat bad foods, you're a bad person. And what are good and bad foods will vary very much from person to person. And also very much between food camps or, as I more commonly call them, food cults. Uh, I very much think they are cults a lot of the time. And that is because we use food as a form of identifying ourselves. We use food as a way to define ourselves as a person. And particularly as we've seen uh, religion decline in countries like the UK, I think what we've seen is also a rise in food cults and diet cults to kind of replace that. Because not only do these kind of cults give us a sense of identity, they give us a sense of people around us who uh, we can have something in common with. It creates this narrative of us versus them, the in-group and the out-group, the people who eat like us and the people who don't eat like us. And so it creates this, this very uh, cult-like, camp-like, uh, defensive and aggressive a narrative around food. So people get very defensive very quickly. If you try and say anything remotely that can be construed as negative about something that they eat. Now I have to deal with this a lot because I am a human who spends a lot of time on social media. And oh my god, it's amazing how much, uh, how much hate, how much abuse, how much uh, just very negative, um, sort of just negative comments I get directed at me for saying the most basic of nutrition concepts online. And the other reason why I want to kind of bring this up is because of this idea of we want to kind of absolve ourselves of responsibility in a way through the use of food. And what I mean by this is that we can feel that if we have complete control uh, over what we eat, if we make all the decisions and have all the responsibility, we are then also responsible for when it goes wrong and we become unwell. Whereas if we feel like some of that responsibility is, is, uh, is given to someone else, such as a diet book, a diet guru of some sort, who then tells us what we can and cannot eat. We feel that, that we don't have that same responsibility if something goes wrong because we were following instructions. And that makes us feel a little bit more comfortable in an environment where we've never had so much choice about food uh, ever in the course of history, which can be quite overwhelming for, for some people. And so I really, really like this quote. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You're not merely disputing facts. You're pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. And that might seem very dramatic, but if you just look at what's happening in Silicon Valley, for example, you've got a lot of startups, you've got a lot of uh, these like really big tech bros who are doing all sorts of weird stuff with food, weird biohacking stuff. They're appearing on, straight, on stage with like IV drips, uh, which are completely unnecessary. And they're doing all this to try and live as long as possible because they, they can control so many aspects of their life, but the one thing they can't really control is their health, and they can't control that they're going to die someday, and that terrifies people. And so we like to use food as a way to, to, to fight death as long as we possibly can. And so when you have this, this very moral, this very uh, diversive, this very divisive uh, talk and uh, nature around food, I think it's no wonder that we kind of have this very warped relationship with it where food is so much more than just the nutrients it gives us, which is both a good thing and, and a bad thing. Now, obviously, in the title of this talk, I said why diets don't work, and you're probably wondering, well, do diets really not work? Because it's kind of the dominant message that we get uh, from a variety of different sources that, you know, we have to go on a diet, we have, to, we have to try and lose weight if we're above a certain weight, and we need to do that through the method of weight loss dieting. Um, now, I need to say that short-term, diets are, in fact, very effective. If you're looking to lose weight in the, in the space of around 12 weeks or so, 
it very much works. It's probably the most effective way you can do it in that time. However, as humans, I think looking at just 12 weeks over the course of your life is not really all that significant. And I think we need to be looking at the research in terms of years rather than just a number of weeks. And when we look at it in a number of, in, in the space of years, what we see is that long term, fewer than 20% of people actually manage to maintain weight loss after one year and even fewer after two years. So that's not looking particularly promising. And then we have this brilliant study, the Women's Health Initiative, which is probably one of, if not the biggest study that's ever been done on, on weight loss. And that found that after 7.5 years, more than 20,000 women did not, on average, have a different weight compared to the start. So obviously what kind of happened there is that people lost weight at the beginning and then clearly regained it all afterwards, so that the kind of net effect was, was zero. And we also find that about one-third to two-thirds of weight is regained within one year, almost all within five years. And on top of that, one-third to two-thirds of dieters actually end up regaining more weight than they lost on their diet. So they end up heavier than before, which is kind of not what people are going for when they're going on a weight loss diet. No one's going on a diet thinking, I cannot wait for this to make me heavier. Uh, that's not really what people are going for. And then finally, we have this another, another study that said after two years, individuals who report trying to diet end up at a higher weight than before. So overall, if we look at all this research, which is looking not just at, an, at a, you know, 12 weeks or three months, this is looking at several years. This is really, really good long-term data. And what we see is that for most people, it is in fact true that diets don't work. For the vast majority of people, they are incredibly ineffective, it seems, at doing what we want them to do. There does seem to be a small percentage of the population for whom they do work. And we're not 100% sure why that is. Uh, we do know that they are more likely to be male rather than female. We know that they are um, more likely to have certain genetic variants that mean that they feel less hungry or eat less with, uh, than, than the person sitting next to them in response to the same amount of food. But on the whole, we don't really know a huge amount about why this is. Which is frustrating, of course, because uh, generally we don't want to be in that kind of 80% group who, is, who isn't able to, to maintain weight loss. Um, but I think it's really important to note that they don't really seem to work for most people. And I also think it's important to know that this, this isn't just down to a lack of willpower. I think it's a very negative way of looking at humans in an unrealistic uh, and a very pessimistic way to think that all of a sudden, just about a few decades ago, we were suddenly all lost our willpower overnight. Uh, and to suggest that more than 80% of the population just has no willpower doesn't really quite make sense, especially when you look at things like the statistics of people who are, man who are able to quit smoking, for example. It doesn't seem to quite make sense that people are able to have willpower in that aspect of life, but not in, in this particular one. So I think it's important to note that the research also suggests that it's not just a lack of willpower, that that's not really a good enough argument to explain this phenomenon. And so there's a really interesting area of the research which talks about set point weight or settling point weight. And this is an interesting theory that states that there is an approximate range in which your body kind of feels comfortable, a kind of range, small range of weights that your body kind of likes to be at when you're neither overeating nor undereating, and you're doing a bit of movement, not necessarily huge amounts, but a little bit of movement on a regular basis. And this is kind of where your body will fluctuate a little bit, or will generally stay within certain margins. However, what we see is that this settling point is largely asymmetrical. And what that means is that it will gradually increase over the course of your lifespan. Uh, so generally, as you get older, it gradually tends to increase. This is especially the case in postmenopausal women, for example, because this is actually advantageous. It is beneficial for us to gain a little bit of weight as we get older because it's protective. 
Because if something goes wrong, if we, if we injure ourselves, if we're ill for some reason, it means we have something to fall back on, that we're not going to end up uh, emaciated from a couple of days where we can't eat, for example. We're not going to end up having significant issues from if there are a couple of days when we're unable to access food. And so this is a protective mechanism as we get older. But on top of that, we know that what can happen is that when people gain a lot of weight in a short space of time, their set point weight can go up to accommodate that. And then they, it doesn't really easily go back down. There are not many cases where it can go back down, but it doesn't happen anywhere near as often as it going up. And again, this is, this is considered to be uh, an evolutionary advantage, because when there were times when we were uh, uh, in famine and there were, we didn't have access to food, it wouldn't make sense for our set point weight to drop to accommodate that, because that would be quite uh, harmful. It would put us at greater risk of starvation. Whereas in times when there was plenty of food, it would make sense that our set point weight could go up to accommodate that, so they would be in a safer place, and our body would be less willing to let go of that weight than times when we were in famine again. So this kind of set point weight is an interesting theory to kind of explain why as humans we actually tend to gain weight over the course of our lifespan as well. And then I think it's important to note that when someone goes on a calorie-restricted diet, what they are essentially doing is they're fighting their biology because their body doesn't really want them to lose weight. Again, it's, it's, there's an evolutionary explanation for that. And what happens is that when someone goes on a calorie-restricted diet, their metabolism tends to drop. And that drop can, can be sustained for up to a year after someone stops dieting. And also, your hunger hormones can be massively increased, meaning you feel more hungry more quickly. And again, that effect can last for up to a year after someone stops dieting. So I think it's no wonder when you consider these, these biological mechanisms that are in place, I think it's no wonder the result is often that people end up eating loads of food, end up overeating, and just end up regaining the weight that they lost. I think that's a very understandable response when you consider the biological mechanisms that are in place. And so, as I said, this isn't just a lack of willpower. This is fighting the basic mechanisms that your body has in place to try and stop you from losing weight, to stop you from starving. Now, there are a small group of people who are able to fight their biology very effectively. But I wouldn't specifically say that these people are uh, the healthiest bunch because they tend to be the same people who have anorexia nervosa. And that is absolutely not uh, a great place to be with food either. So, I also want to point out that prescribing diets for weight loss is not completely harmless. We tend to very much focus on the benefits, the positives that can come with going on a diet, with losing weight. However, I think it's also important that we talk about the flip side, that we talk about the unintended side effects that can often happen, because we don't really mention these very much. Now, firstly, as I mentioned, slow metabolism, and alongside that, a loss of muscle mass, because unfortunately, you can't really tell your body, hey, can you just lose the fat, keep the muscle, that would be great. Unfortunately, you can't really tell your body to do that, it doesn't really work that way. And so you do lose some muscle alongside any fat that is lost. And then, as I said, disruption of appetite hormones, hunger hormones are increased, satiety hormones are decreased, which means you feel more hungry more quickly and you feel less satisfied with the same amount of food. There's also, uh, for me, the most significant is this, is the poor mental health that can be associated with dieting. In particular, we need to acknowledge that dieting is one of the biggest risk factors for eating disorders. That is absolutely huge and it needs to be acknowledged in a way that it just isn't at the moment. And also we have things like low mood, which I think is very understandable considering if you are not able to eat all the things you want, it doesn't exactly make you feel great necessarily, especially when you're surrounded by people who are eating all the things that you really want to eat. Um, food obsession, because when you're tracking uh, or, or being so hyper aware of every little thing that's going into your mouth, I think it's understandable that it can become quite obsessive 
in nature that people can become very fixated and very obsessed with, with what they're eating in that way. And stress, again, if you're tracking or counting every single thing, that is a, that is a very time-consuming activity that can be quite stressful as well. And then guilt. And the guilt is usually comes around uh, once the weight regain starts to happen because people think that uh, they have failed the diet, but in fact it's the diet that's failed them. And yeah, as I mentioned as well, weight regain is a significant uh, side effect of dieting as well. And we also have this phenomenon of weight cycling or yo-yo dieting, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's when you just go up and down and up and down. You go on a diet, you regain the weight. You go on a diet, you regain the weight. And this sort of, it's considered uh, weight cycling or yo-yo dieting when it's several times a year that this cycle happens. And what we know from the research is that actually this is uh, not a great place for your body to be in. It's in fact incredibly stressful for your body. Uh, it's actually considered to be um, healthier for your body to stay uh, at, a, at a consistent weight than to constantly fluctuate like that because it is incredibly stressful mentally and it's also quite stressful for the body and is actually now we have some emerging research that suggests that yo-yo dieting is associated with a higher risk of heart disease for example because of the stress it puts the body under to constantly be, be shifting like this. And then I think we need to acknowledge that we do have an issue of weight stigma in this country and in many countries around the world. Um, people are very much discriminated against simply based on the way they look. We know that fat people are, for example, less likely to be hired. They are likely to be paid less than someone who's thin. They're also less likely to get married. They're more likely to face a lot of discrimination and abuse on the streets, for example, just for existing, just for going about their daily activities. And this is discrimination. This is, this is you know, thinking very negatively about someone and making assumptions simply based on the way someone looks and I don't think that really has a place in society anymore. I think we need to kind of work on challenging our prejudices in that kind of area. So all this kind of brings me to the point that we need to stop thinking that weight equals health. I think we need to see health as being a bit more complicated than just this number on a scale which really just tells you your relationship with gravity. It doesn't really tell you anything about your worth as a human being at all. It tells you very, very little about someone's health especially when we're in that kind of middle ground where it in uh, the kind of BMI range of like 18 to 30, within that area it's very, very difficult to tell anything about a person's health based on their weight. And so I want us to kind of get, I want to kind of get across the idea that health is so much more than this one number. And I want to illustrate this using a, a great example, which uh, through this uh, the medium of a beautiful bar chart, which is going to come up. So I want you to think of uh, four health promoting behaviours. Four quite simple things. We've got not smoking, being physically active, a moderate alcohol intake because people who drink a little bit actually tend to live longer than those who don't drink at all, which is wonderful news, and also eating five a day. So four quite basic, not too complex, not too highly specific things. And then what we see here is that when these health promoting behaviours are plotted against the risk of mortality, what we see is that when people don't engage in any of these uh, four health promoting behaviours, Weight does kind of have a significant impact here. So people who are at a higher weight are at much higher risk of death within the next given year. But when we go down to someone engaging in all four health promoting behaviours, we don't really see much of a difference between the, someone who has a BMI of 20 and someone who has a BMI of over 30. There doesn't seem to be that difference in that same way, which is not to say, which really is just to kind of illustrate that, just to kind of really illustrate the point that actually. Health promoting behaviours are actually incredibly valuable and important and don't necessarily have to occur with the goal of weight loss and are beneficial completely in independently of weight in some way. So obviously this doesn't, this, what this doesn't show is for example things like what, whether people who 
go from here to here and end up losing weight, for example. This is obviously just a static moment in time. However, I think it's still really interesting that it shows that actually when someone engages in all four of these behaviours, that actually their weight has less of an impact on their risk of death than we might think it does. And so this is based on uh, two big studies, one in the UK, one in the US, which collectively had around 100,000 participants. So this is a significant number of people. This is not just someone who decided, hey, let's look at five people and see what happens. This was a significant number of people. And so I think this kind of data, we can take this uh, quite seriously. And the most important thing about this is that everyone benefits. If you can see, like, everyone who engages in full health and motor behaviours has a lower risk, no matter which BMI category they're in. And that, that is great news. It means that these are kind of things that we could target at everybody, not just target people of a certain weight. And, lot, and many people can benefit from this. And it's also non-stigmatising non in that way, because these messages can be promoted independently of their effect on weight as well, which is great because there are obviously a lot more benefits that these four behaviours can accompany than just weight-related ones. So with all that in mind, this idea that weight equals health, I think is one of the reasons why humans have such a complicated uh, relationship with food and why we can do some very weird and wonderful things in order to try and achieve the weight that we're told we have to get to in order to uh, be as healthy as possible. As uh, so kind of the next thing I want to offer, offer up is this concept of healthism. Has anyone come across <coughs> this idea before? This is an interesting uh, idea that says that health is considered to be a goal in itself, not a means for attaining other goals in life. Uh, so what I mean by this is the idea, you know, if, if someone were to say to you, oh, I'm, try I'm trying to be a bit healthier, I'm sure your reaction would just be, great, that's great. You wouldn't necessarily question it. And I'm not saying you should question it, but I think this idea that just healthy equals good is not really good enough for me anymore. I would rather people have people's motivation for wanting to be healthier as something more tangible, something, something more positive in the sense that there could be so many beautiful reasons as to why someone would want to be healthier. It could be something like, I want to be able to run a marathon next year. It could be, I want to be able to walk up the stairs without, to the station without, uh, without you know, being able to blow, like losing my breath. Or it could be something like, I want to be able to reach 80 years old and feel good enough to be able to play with my grandchildren. Isn't that a, such a wonderful reason for wanting to be healthier and so much nicer than just healthy is good? And so I would actually, I would encourage you to think about this as well. Think about what kind of reasons uh, you would have in your life for wanting to be healthier as well. And so the other aspect of healthism is that it basically encourages this idea of if you get sick, it's your fault. Because the responsibility lies in this case purely with the individual, in the sense that health is considered to be a moral imperative. Healthy is something that uh, you do, uh, health is something you pursue if you want to be a good person, if you want to be a good citizen. And the only way you can be a good person is by pursuing health at all costs. And if you get it wrong, it's your fault and your responsibility. When in actual fact, we know that the factors that determine our health are largely outside of our control for the most part. But also, I think this is quite a slippery slope in the sense that you know, there are some people who aren't able to reach a certain definition of health because they have some kind of disability or a chronic illness of some sort. And to completely uh, say that you know, you're not a good person or not a good enough citizen because you are unable to meet the standard is not really kind of ideal, I think. And I think it is important to note that there is a point at which healthy gets taken too far. As with all things, too much of a good thing can end up being a bad thing. And there is this concept which has emerged kind of uh, in the research and in society in the past maybe 20 years or so. And this is orthorexia. This is the new eating disorder on the block. It is an unhealthy obsession with being healthy. This is when healthy eating gets taken to the point where it is obsessive, 
where it's anxiety-inducing, and where someone is so, so hyper-focused on physical health that their mental health and their social health really suffers. And what I mean by this is kind of, when you think about some of these like massive wellness bloggers who kind of say things like, you should cut out this food, and then this food, and then this food, and then you will reach this wonderful state of health. So you can kind of see how someone could start cutting out all these various foods because they believe them to be toxic or damaging in some way, and ended up having a very limited list of foods that are deemed to be clean or good or healthy enough. And anything that falls outside of that kind of category can be met with a lot of anxiety. And so it's very difficult to have an active social life when you are so restricted in what you're eating in that sense. And uh, it can also be obviously very anxiety inducing and very stressful. So mentally it can cause a lot of harm. This is actually one of my big uh, focus areas in clinic because this is a really a growing area um, especially because of the rise of things like clean eating. The whole clean eating movement, which very much uh, became popular through Instagram. Um, I actually did that research myself. Uh, there's a, definitely a link between social media, well, Instagram, clean eating, orthorexia, because I did that research and I found that, so I know that that exists. Um, and it, the, one of the reasons why I did that research is because I was one of those people who fell for the whole clean eating thing, and it did not make me feel very good, and now I'm angry, and therefore I want to fight it. Um, so kind of speaking of the notion of, of clean eating, I, just, I do want to bring up the concept of language. Um, we tend to say things like, oh, I'm so bad for eating this cake, and it's like, for God's sake, Sharon, you're eating food, you're not burning down an orphanage. In other words, calm down. Um, we, we talk about food in this very dramatic sense. I think, you know, pretty much all of us have probably said this, like, oh, I'm so bad for eating this, or, you know, well, I'm being good today because I didn't have any chocolate. This idea, again, that food has this kind of power. And so, what this does is it kind of encourages us to demonize foods in a way. This idea of a bad food being a food that is demonized. And so processed food is one that is a very good example of this. Uh, processed food is, all, is pretty much universally demonized by pretty much every, every group you can imagine. And I really disagree with this because the degree of processing is not related to the degree of healthfulness of something. And actually, um, no one can give me a very satisfactory definition of what a processed food is. Uh, because a can of beans is technically considered to be a processed food. Um, if you buy a tub of ready-made hummus, which I am aware is like the most middle-class example I could possibly give you, but if you buy that, that is considered to be an ultra-processed food. But no one would argue that a can of beans or, you know, a bit of hummus is bad for you. In fact, those things actually give you one of your five a day, so they're actually pretty good. Um, but they are considered to be processed and ultra-processed foods, and in fact, the thing that you consume every day that is the most processed is water. And it needs to be that processed because otherwise we would all be dying of dysentery and that's not really what we want either. Uh, and finally, you know, you can get some such great ready meals nowadays that give you, for example, two of your five a day, that give you a source of complex carbs, that give you a decent source of protein. And I don't see anything wrong with someone having that on an occasional basis. I don't think that it's worth demonizing that when that convenience is actually a wonderful thing sometimes. And I think we also need to get away from this moralizing food, this idea food is not good or bad. Food is so much more complex than that. Food is always, always context dependent. And food does not make you a good or bad person. Food does not have that much power over you. But when we use this kind of language, and when we reinforce that kind of language on a day-to-day -day basis, we do internalize those ideas, and we do truly believe those kinds of things. Which is why a lot of people have a huge amount of shame attached to food and eating because we internalize these ideas of morality that are attached to food. And similarly, this idea of clean eating, 
the idea that you know if I if this food is clean then that food must be dirty and if you eat it you're a dirty person. I mean it's very religious in nature I think as well this kind of clean language this this idea that if I eat clean foods then I will be pure I will be wholesome I will be a good person. It's uh, not a big fan of that kind of religious notion there, but also this idea that if someone eats differently, they are dirty. Ooh, I don't think that's very nice. Also this idea of real food. I have a real issue with the concept of real food because the opposite of real food is either fake food, which I can't eat, or imaginary food, which I can't see, but therefore I can't eat. So with that in mind, all food is real food and we need to stop this kind of horrible words. Um, even junk food is one that I have a little bit of an issue with just because of what it implies. It implies that if you eat junk food that you are treating your body like a bin and I don't think, I don't think that's a particularly positive way for us to be thinking about our bodies. And then can I just say that guilt-free is not a thing. Uh, none of you feel guilty for breathing, none of you feel guilty for drinking water, none of you feel guilty for needing to go to the bathroom, but we are somehow supposed to feel guilty for doing something that we need to do to survive, like eating food. I don't think that's particularly helpful. I don't think we should be encouraging this idea that people should feel guilty for doing something that they have to do in order to survive. So no, guilt-free, not a fan. And then I think we also just need to be aware of the effect that this language can have on other people, in particular the impact that this can have on children, because they're, they're pretty much smarter than we think of all the time. And uh, whenever I trace back uh, in clinic any kind of uh, eating disorder, disordered eating or food anxieties among people, it almost inevitably comes back to their childhood. And I usually feel, start feeling like Freud at that point, I'm like, tell me about your childhood, tell me what was food like in your childhood. And it's quite, people are just very taken aback by that question usually. But often a lot of people's ideas about food can be traced back to their childhood in the sense of how their peers or how their parents talked about food, how their parents talked about their bodies, and they kind of adopted that. And what we see often is that people, um, children whose parents have gone on diet after diet after diet, are actually at higher risk of eating disorders as well. So we need to be aware of the effect this language can have, especially on children, and encourage a bit more food positive uh, language around food, and a bit more, less moralistic, more neutral language around food as well. So the next kind of explanation I want to offer as to why humans get so weird about food is because we have this really big shifting standard of beauty, which has very much shifted over the course of decades. And we have these two concepts, which are not things that I've made up. These are the terms that are used in the research. This concept of the thin ideal, which is the ideal standard for women. And this is both the ideal standard of beauty as well as the ideal standard for health, because they're pretty much the same thing at this point. And right now, the kind of the thin ideal would be something like your typical Victoria's Secret model. Very thin, but curves in, the, in just the right places, but definitely a bit of a bum and a bit of a flat stomach. Those things are very important. And whereas for men, we have this concept of the lean ideal, which is quite similar in the sense that you still definitely have to be slim. However, there has to be a degree of muscularity. It's this idea of this uh, upside down triangle, um, kind of that kind of concept. And you can see, especially with this, how this has shifted over the years. Because if you were to look at the cover of Men's Health from 10 years ago compared to now, what you'll see is that the cover stars will have, significant, have significantly more muscle now than they did 10 years ago. So there's been a gradual shift that this, this ideal, these two ideals, have become more extreme. And actually, they're at a point now where they are basically unattainable for at least 90% of the population. And yet, we are constantly bombarded with messages that we should be striving to look like this at all costs. And so I think it's no wonder that we have an epidemic, epidemic of body image issues where over 80% of women and up to 50% of men are dissatisfied with the way they look. That's a huge, huge amount of the population. 
And that's not just, that, that's, that, that is partly down to these kinds of concepts as well. This, this standard of beauty which is so unattainable. And so of course when people are very dissatisfied with the way they look, and when they're constantly told they need to look like this, again, of course we do all sorts of weird and wonderful things with food in order to try and achieve that. Especially when you have all these celebrities telling you constantly about all the amazing food that they've decided not to eat, and that's apparently the answer. And of course, social media does play a huge role in this, and we know that social media is linked to a number of, uh, a number of mental health outcomes, which I think we need to kind of acknowledge as well. Um, spending a lot of time on social media increases your risk of things like depression and anxiety. It also increases your risk of eating disorders, especially if you view a lot of food content online. Um, it's also linked to lower self-esteem. Generally, the more strangers someone follows on social media, the lower their self-esteem is likely to be. And then we also have this concept of objectification, which uh, is when we start to see our bodies as objects, as ornaments to be looked at, rather than incredible machines that can do all sorts of incredible things. And what links all of these things together is this, this notion of social comparison theory. Now, this is a really interesting theory in psychology. Um, which basically says that as humans, our brains are kind of programmed to do a little bit of comparison to the people around us. And we do either upward social comparison to people who are just slightly better than us, or we do downward social comparison to people who are just slightly worse than us. Now, this upward social comparison is extremely beneficial in small doses, in the sense that it's, it drives us to be more successful, it fuels ambition, and what we historically would have seen is that people would go to work or go to school, and they would do that little bit of upward social comparison to their peers, uh, especially someone who's just slightly better, so you can get that kind of competitive edge and strive to do better. And then we would come home and that would be it, because we wouldn't compare ourselves to our parents in that way, different age group, we wouldn't necessarily compare ourselves to our, to our, to our siblings either in that same way. Maybe a little bit, but not in, not in any way to the same extent. But now what we see is that people are obviously coming home, and have this device in their pocket that gives them 24-7 access to other people's lives, other people's food, other people's bodies, other people's experiences. And no one is posting crap pictures of themselves online. Everyone's only posting pictures of themselves where they're at their best. And so what we have is that when we're constantly able to scroll through pictures of other people's successes and other people's highlight reels and we compare that to our reality, we fall short because we're comparing it behind the scenes to a highlight reel. And inevitably, what that can lead to is that we do, when that, we do that constant upward social comparison and excessive amounts of it, we end up feeling pretty negative about ourselves. We end up more likely to do all sorts of weird things to try and get to um, a, a certain type of body or a certain type of eating. And we don't, we don't feel particularly great. Now, obviously, this is an inevitability, but we are seeing a growing trend in these things. And there's some really interesting uh, data that, uh, that Beat have, I think, recently released which shows a significant spike in eating disorders in the year that Instagram came out. I don't think that's so much of a coincidence, really. Uh, the other thing I want to mention about social media is that there are a whole bunch of idiots on social media who I, as a healthcare professional, have to compete with, and you, as wonderful people, have to see and have to just, they're just there, unfortunately. And uh, I'd like to give you a great example of this. Um, don't say anything out loud, but if you think you know who this guy is, can you please raise your hand? I won't call on you. A couple, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, what if I give you the name? He is called the medical medium. Familiar? Yeah, this guy is probably one of my least favorite people in existence. Uh, he is the reason why half of Hollywood and two-thirds of Instagram are drinking celery juice, because apparently celery juice will cure pretty much anything. It will cure your skin condition.
conditions. It will cure your diabetes, it will cure your cancer. Obviously it will not, but that's what this guy is saying. And he has millions of followers online, and he has sold millions of books. Naturally, he writes for Goop, which is the most, like, or like obviously he does. Now, the big problem with this guy is that, as you can see kind of in the name, medical medium. Um, he, in actual fact, has not a single health qualification to his name. He is not a doctor. He is not a nutritionist or dietitian. He has no health qualifications whatsoever. In fact, he gets his health information from a spirit from the future, which came to him when he was about five and told him that he could basically see people's illnesses and told him that celery juice is the cure for everything and that doctors just need to catch up. Now, I wrote about celery juice earlier this year on Instagram and it is, it is the thing that I have received the most hate, abuse and negativity about. I received so much abuse from people and by the way, I didn't even say, hey, it's probably just a placebo effect and maybe you're just a little bit more hydrated. I didn't even say that because I knew that would piss people off. So I actually just said, hey, are we sure we want to take health advice from a guy who has no health qualifications and talks to a spirit? Are we really sure we want to do that? <laughs> and apparently the answer was, yes, we do. Because the, the amount of hate I got was absolutely unprecedented. I've never, I mean, I've received my fair share of hate, usually from very angry militant vegans, to be fair. But this was a whole other ballgame. And... It was so bad that I had to switch off all the comments under that post and I had to temporarily switch off some of my DMs as well because I was like, I cannot deal with this anymore. I had to switch it off for a good 24 hours before I could actually be on Instagram again without just getting constant messages of hate. It was really quite something. Um, I'm very proud to say that this guy has now blocked me on Instagram and it's one of my proudest achievements to date. Uh, probably up there with my degrees, not gonna lie. It's a, it's, it's a good feeling, the fact that he thinks I'm significant enough that he needs to block me, otherwise I'm just gonna keep pestering him. I would. But obviously this is the kind of thing that I, as a healthcare professional, have to compete with on social media. And this is the kind of information that we are constantly kind of exposed to on social media as well. And it's, it's obviously very problematic because it's so unbelievably wrong. So wrong. And yet, millions of followers, millions of books, people believe this guy, which is a real big problem. It's very concerning to me that so many people are falling for this. Uh, and obviously I, I understand to an extent because it's, very, it's a very compelling, simple narrative, but it's still, I find it very scary that he has that many followers. Now obviously we don't want to give all the blame to social media, we do need to talk about the fact that there are some considerable sensationalist headlines in the media. Um, this is one of my favourite uh, like nutrition related headlines ever. Uh, it's a bit of an old one, as you can see by Princess Diana's face, um, but it's still a good one. I, uh, chocolate can beat diabetes. Oh, I really wish it could. I really wish it could. It would make my life so much easier if I could prescribe chocolate to people. That would just be wonderful. Um, but unfortunately, no, this is not true. Chocolate cannot be diabetes. Chocolate never. It was never in the in like in the realm of possibility that chocolate could be diabetes. And actually, um, someone has created a brilliant website which I highly recommend looking at of a list of everything the Daily Mail says gives you cancer. Now, some of these things make a lot of sense. We've got uh, asbestos, makes sense. But afternoons, <laughs> I'm not really quite sure how we're supposed to avoid those. Uh, uh, and also, interestingly, uh, babies, <laughs> which is especially hilarious considering just earlier this year, there was another headline which said that women who don't have children are more likely to get cancer. So which one is it? Uh, according to the Daily Mail, it is definitely both. Now obviously there is, there is an equivalent list to this, uh, which is everything the Daily Mail says will cure cancer, and as you can imagine, 
90% of everything on this list is also on that list. <laughs> it is a very entertaining way to spend an afternoon. Uh, later, this, later this week it's going to be raining, I highly recommend doing this then. Especially because this only goes up to B. So, you know, there's a lot more where this came from, a lot. Uh, highly recommend looking at it, it's very, very entertaining. But of course, this isn't just the Daily Mail. We can't just blame the Daily Mail. It is very much across the board of all mainstream media outlets that we see this kind of sensationalist, these sensationalist headlines, these dramatic uh, nutrition statements. And of course, there is misinformation everywhere. I think it's no wonder that people are really, really confused about what to eat. People are just really unsure when there are so many mixed messages all the time. Um, I like sending this to people who tell me they want to go paleo because it's just <laughs> I actually like living now when I don't have to die in childbirth. It's wonderful and I have vaccines and I can eat a whole variety of things that I would never have the option to eat. Um, I have no desire to go back to paleolithic times ever. Um, but people are, people are confused about what to eat. They get mixed messages every day, there's a different diet book out every day, there's a different diet guru saying something different, there's a different headline. And so it's no wonder that people are confused and don't know what the right answer is. And I get asked a lot, what is the right way of eating? What is the perfect diet? Um, my answer is usually this. Anyone who, who suggests that there is one perfect way of eating for everyone is a quack. I am not a quack, therefore I am not going to say this. I will acknowledge that nutrition is very complex, and that there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all, and that everything in nutrition is very much context-dependent, and there is no one way of eating that works for everyone. Because Partly because we all have different preferences. We have different genetics, we have different, different cultures, we have different uh, upbringings. We, we're all so different that, of course, there's never going to be one way of eating that is right for everyone. And so what we have here is an example of a variety of different fear-mongering tactics that can be used to encourage people or to discourage people from a particular way of eating or from a particular diet, for example. And one of the clear ones we see is this idea of this appeal to nature. This idea that if something is natural, therefore it must automatically be good. Which completely discounts the fact that nature is constantly trying to kill you all the time. Uh, if any of us were to go outside and try to forage, I would probably guess that we would die very quickly. I would 100% die within a couple of hours because I have no idea what food looks like in the wild because I live in London. I have not generally seen that much wild growing stuff. Um, but there are, so, there are so many poisonous plants that are constantly trying to kill you. We've got poisonous berries, poisonous mushrooms. Nature is really not trying to keep you alive. Nature does not care if you live or die. And this idea that if something is natural, therefore it must automatically be good, is this, uh, it's, a very, it's just really definitely inaccurate. Um, there are plenty of things that are, gener and also generally, when we're talking about things like uh, additives and things like e-numbers and anything that is, that, is, that is deemed to be artificial, it actually tends to be a lot better regulated because it has to pass a lot more safety tests than something that is deemed to be natural. So we actually have a better idea of how safe it is and at what level it's safe as well. Then we also have these kind of false dichotomies, things like processed versus unprocessed, this good versus bad. And I think I've kind of covered this, so I'm just going to go past that. Um, we have this idea of only food you can pronounce. Um, now, I have, a, I have a degree in biochemistry. I can pronounce a lot of things that most people cannot. I don't think it's very fair that I should be able to eat things that someone who doesn't have a science degree is not allowed to eat. That doesn't seem particularly fair. Seems a little bit elitist to me as well. Uh, also, everyone in this room, we can all pronounce cyanide. Definitely don't recommend eating it. Um, and what I find particularly hilarious about this is that the people who say this the most are the same people who popularized quinoa in this country and called it quinoa. <laughs> 
so they can't even follow their own advice on that. And then we have this idea of toxic food as well. We see this especially at the moment in terms of sugar, uh, this idea that uh, food, this, this food is toxic, you must avoid. Now any good chemist will tell you that the dose makes the poison. If you're going to tell me that something is toxic, you have to tell me at what dose. Because everything is toxic, given the right amount. If you were to eat 50 bananas in one day, you'd be at risk of potassium poisoning. If you were to eat 300 grams of raw kidney beans per kilogram of body weight in one day, you will die. Uh, that's a lot of kidney beans, to be fair, but you can still die. I don't panic, the ones in cans are cooked, so that doesn't count, you don't have to stress about that. Um, but also, there have been cases where people have died from water. And I don't mean drowning, I mean actually drinking too much water. There have been cases where people have crossed the finish line of a marathon, have drunk around 6.5 litres in very quick succession, and have died as a result of overhydration. Even water can kill you if you drink enough of it in a short space of time. Even water can be toxic. There's also this uh, very morbid but quite hilarious uh, idea, which I'm very fond of, the idea that oxygen is just slowly killing us over the course of about 80 years. Um, a bit morbid, but actually quite accurate because oxygen, pure oxygen in the body, ooh, very toxic, not, doesn't work. So we have these, these whole kind of, all these fear-mongering tactics, which are all very much designed to get us to try and buy various programs and books and things like that. Um, they're quite effective in the short term, but they are, I find them very ineffective in the long term, and especially the, the detrimental impact they can have on people's mental health is quite significant as well. So to kind of sum up some of the things that we've talked about in terms of why humans have this weird relationship with food. We've talked about this idea of food being identity, of food being a way that we kind of define ourselves. And one of the clearest examples that we can see with this is this idea that people say, I am vegan, not I eat vegan, or I am keto, not I eat keto. So we very much use this I am. It's a way of defining ourselves, and that gives it a lot of power. We also tend to assume that weight is health, uh, that they are the same thing, that they are synonymous, even though health is so much more complex than just weight. We have this concept of healthism, that health is a moral imperative, that we must pursue it at all costs, otherwise we're not good citizens. We have these shifting standards of beauty, which are very difficult for most of us to obtain. We have social media and the comparison trap, this constant comparison to other people's lives. We have misinformation and fear-mongering all over the place, no matter where you look, especially if you turn on the news, you read a newspaper, and especially if you go and look at Netflix documentaries. They are the absolute worst sources of nutrition advice in existence. Um, so these are just some of the kind of things we've talked about, and I would hope that I've convinced you of at least some of them at this point. And they, as you can see, it is a complex picture. There is no one answer. It is all of these things and several others that I have not really had time to delve into. But I want to leave you with something to take away. I want to leave you with some um, my top five tips for things to be mindful of, red flags around the place that you can spot. And if you see these red flags, you should be on high alert that something is misinformation and is, is, is not to be trusted. The first one is one single answer to all problems, regardless of cause, and therefore a one-size-fits-all approach. This could be something like uh, this idea of like, all disease begins in the gut. No, it doesn't. It's something like that. You know, this idea that we, are, we all need to eat the same way because all diseases come from, comes from the same origin, and that all humans have the same needs food-wise, and that is absolutely not true. This idea of miracle foods or superfoods which have no evidence to support them. Superfood is a marketing term, it is not a scientific term. There is scientifically no real such thing as a superfood. Yes, you'll have some foods that are more nutrient-dense than others, 
But it depends on what nutrients you're after, to be honest, whether something is actually, you could call it a superfood at that time. If you're after omega-3, kale is not going to be particularly helpful. Uh, whereas, in, whereas salmon, for example, would be. But we would, we would consider kale especially to be a superfood. It's like it's not, it's not a superfood if you're looking for omega-3, for example. So this whole idea of miracle foods or superfoods, uh, by miracle foods I mean also things like celery juice. It's not a miracle food. It does absolutely nothing. Celery should not be juiced. Celery should be dipped in hummus. That is how it is supposed to be. <laughs> then we have a reliance on ancient wisdoms and anecdotes. Uh, just the idea that if something's been done for a long time, it must be accurate. Uh, if that were true, we'd have to bring back exorcism and bloodletting on the NHS, and I really don't think we should do that. And then anecdotes are very, very unreliable because no one's going to post a negative testimonial on their website, for example. People like the medical medium will actively go and block anyone who said, anyone who disagrees. Um, they will delete any negative comments so that when someone who is new to all this goes on that page, looks through the comments, they will only see positivity and positive anecdotes all the way through. Meaning they're then more likely to buy the book and follow the celery juice detox protocol or whatever the hell it's called. And so anecdotes are really unreliable in that sense. Also we have a massive bias. People who, uh, who, who uh, try something very weird and wonderful and for whom it just magically seems to work, uh, or they think it works because of the placebo effect, they will shout about it really loudly. Whereas someone for whom it doesn't work, they're probably just going to quietly move on to something else. And so we get this, we don't really get the same amount of negative anecdotes for something in that way. Then this idea of telling you your body's full of toxins, followed by how to detox it. I've kind of assumed we're at that level now where we all know that this whole detox thing is, is a load of rubbish. There is no food that can detox you. There is no one special food that's magically going to like, cleanse your liver. Your liver is the thing that does the cleansing. It works 24 seven. It's supposed to do that. It's kind of its job. And it does a wonderful, wonderful job at it. There is no particular food that you need to take in order to detox your body. You're doing it already. You're doing it right now. And finally, a fear mongering of food and ingredients. I would argue that if someone is relying on fear tactics, they don't have your health uh, as their interest. They are probably more interested in your money than your, than your health. Because fear, I don't believe fear has a place in a healthy relationship with food. I don't believe fear has a place in a healthy diet. I think uh, to, be, to eat out of fear is just such a negative, not a very, it's not a nice place to be. And so anyone who is encouraging fear, I don't think they really are uh, in pursuit of your health overall. So these are kind of my top five things to kind of be mindful of. And especially with this kind of fear-mongering thing, the kind of tactics and the kind of notions that we've talked about already. So finally, what is healthy? And I have a feeling you're not going to be too pleased with this because it is so, so vague, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, firstly, having a good relationship with food. I think this is so important. And what I mean by this is eating in a way that feels good for your body, helps your body function in the way it needs to, tastes good as well, and comes from a place of self-respect rather than self-punishment. Um, seeing physical, mental, and social health as being equal. They should have equal importance overall in your life because they all matter equally. Yes, in the short term, we will absolutely be prioritizing one over the other in certain occasions, but I think the balance overall should be in favor of all three equally. And so, for example, if you're choosing a salad over a burger one day, you might be prioritizing your physical health there. If you're deciding, I really need a takeaway pizza today because I'm feeling sad, that is prioritizing your mental health. That is valid. And sometimes you've got to go out and eat with friends rather than eating alone at home with a boring salad that makes you feel miserable. Sometimes that is the healthiest thing to do. Sometimes that is absolutely needed. 
Because what we know is one of the key ways that humans can make sure we live longer is by spending time with other humans. And food is just the perfect way of doing that. Food is the most common way in which we spend time with other people. Alcohol is the other one, which is why people who drink a little bit tend to live longer than those who don't. It's not the alcohol itself, it's the social aspect that it's associated with. Enjoying yourself. I think it's actually really good for us to enjoy eating and enjoy our food. We are actually pretty much programmed to enjoy food. Food is supposed to light up the pleasure centers in our brain. That is supposed to happen. That's an evolutionary thing that is just really clever because it makes sense for us to enjoy things that we need to do to survive. I really believe that if sex was not enjoyable, if sex didn't light up the pleasure centers in your brain, humans would have died out a long time ago. I don't think we would still be here. Similarly, food is enjoyable because it helps us to get to that point where we survive long enough to pass on our genes. It makes sense. Also, there's some great research um, that shows that when people enjoy the food that they're eating, they actually uh, digest it better and they extract more vitamins and minerals from it. So, it is also definitely good for you to enjoy your food. Just mind your food language, just being aware of the effect that language can have, just being aware especially that continual exposure to certain kinds of language around food, the effect that that can have on us as well. And just making some small tweaks with that. No calling foods good or bad, call food what it is. It is delicious, it is wonderful, it is tasty, it is spicy, it is hot, it is cold. Call food what it is, not good or bad, because food does not have that power. And then do a quality control check if you follow on social media. Um, I, kind of, I like to liken this to the whole Marie Kondo thing. Uh, does this person spark joy? Does this person make me feel good when I look at their content on social media? Yes, they can stay. No, off they go. I sometimes in clinic will take someone's phone off them and will go through their Instagram in particular and I'll ask them, when you look at this person's content, do you feel better or worse afterwards? And if they say worse, I will hit that unfollow button for them. And honestly, after a couple of days, they don't even notice they're gone. And for every person that is that we get rid of, we replace it with things like nature or puppies because you cannot feel bad about yourself when you're looking at pictures of puppies. It's just not possible. <laughs> and then finally, just being skeptical of health information online. Just being aware that the health information that is out there, there is a lot of misinformation. There is a lot of information that comes from unreliable sources that is sensationist, fear-mongering, that is just very unhelpful in nature and just being, uh, just being a bit more skeptical about that and challenging the, the things that we read online. So those are kind of my key things that I think are conducive to health. Thank you very much for listening. So thank you so much, that was very interesting. Um, we've run slightly over time, so we'll just take a very quick, uh, maybe five minute comfort break. Um, we're back at, um, let's say, eight, 32 by that clock over there. Um, so gentlemen's toilets are upstairs, ladies is downstairs um, if you need and yeah, we'll, uh, we'll resume back in a few minutes for the Q&A. Um, I sort of half listened to a programme on, I half listened to a programme on Radio 4 this afternoon and it was about some research project that you probably know a lot about and that is how individuals react different to different foods or nutrients perhaps you could say something about that. I mean, that pretty much sums it up, but yes, so what we've seen in research, which is quite interesting, is if you take a group of people, feed them the same meal, uh, for some people, they, their blood sugars will immediately go up very high and then back down again. Some people will have a very modest response. 
and other people's will go down and then back up again. So people's uh, response in terms of uh, blood sugar, blood cholesterol, uh, blood lipids, all of these things in the immediate response to a meal will be completely different to the same meal, which again shows the idea that actually everyone eating the same food and having the same diet makes absolutely no sense because we all do respond quite differently to the exact same meal at the exact same time. So yeah, our bodies are react very differently and are very unique in that sense. Um, the implications would be, for example, that for some people they can feel very, uh, very hungry again very quickly from eating a lot of uh, very high carb diet, for example. Um, for other people, they would thrive on that kind of way of eating. So, uh, uh, eating a very uh, a, a diet that is very high in whole grains, for example, would be very, very beneficial for them and helps keep them full for longer and helps keep them satisfied. Uh, for others, it would be quite more detrimental. So there's always going to be a, like a, an overall framework which will work for pretty much everyone, not too extreme on either end. But where someone uh, functions optimally within that kind of variability will, will vary very much. And so for some people they might thrive better on a lower carb diet for example, some people on a higher, some people do very well with plenty of protein, some people really suffer, some people can deal with a lot of fibre, other people they eat a little bit more fibre than usual and they really can tell. So there's a lot of variability within that and then also if uh, there's also potential then variability in terms of risk for things like heart disease and type 2 diabetes as well. Thank you. Um, yes, when you showed the, you, when you mentioned orthorexia, it's very important, I think, to monitor what suits you. Now that picture was full of all the, the nightshades which are absolutely terribly bad for my arthritis and uh, you know I can't eat a tomato without really feeling pain the next day so I have to observe what things are good for me and what aren't I mean uh, a little I'm not I don't have celiac disease but an ordinary wheat is very bad for me so I eat spelt instead which is slightly better for me yeah, and that's again this idea that everyone thrives on different ways of eating and actually that's why when I mentioned the idea of a healthy relationship with food, what that includes is not just eating what you want, but actually doing that from a position of what makes me feel good, what makes my body feel good. And if you know that a particular food consistently doesn't make you feel good, then actually it's probably a sensible thing to either reduce it or potentially even cut it out. Although I think cutting out should be a last resort, only if necessary. Uh, but yeah, that absolutely means like a healthy relationship with food and a healthy attitude towards food means respecting what your body likes and doesn't like in that sense, as well as what you like and don't like. Um, yeah, but a few years ago I was invited down to a trade food fair in Bari and with the local products, etc. Sorry? Okay. <laughs> a few years ago I was invited down to a, tr a trade fair in Bari and it was all the usual sort of things. Um, and they were talking about the Mediterranean diet. But what was interesting was there was a professor there at the local university who dealt with people's ailments and so forth. And what he said, he said that the Mediterranean diet in itself was a diet that had, was, was a consistent diet over generations. It was a tradition. And he said that one of the problems he encounters is when people change their foods every five minutes. In other words, there was no consistency on food. It was like 
And I noticed at that point that what we do in England, we'll say, should we have a Chinese tonight, or an Indian, or should I eat this, should I eat that? And we're encouraged to do that, but we don't actually have a consistent diet. And I'm also told that people that live longest tend to, tend to survive uh, a profit by a consistent diet. Now, is this one of the things which, um, this is the first thing. The other thing is now that instead of looking at food, we're looking at brands. So you don't ask for a hamburger at McDonald's, you ask for a McDonald's. All right? and, and, and the other ones are all trying to do the same. So we, 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 we buy Kellogg's, we buy um, McDonald's, we buy these sort of things, okay? Um, so we have no understanding of the products. But the thing is, the first question was, is it bad to keep on changing, not just occasionally, but just to keep on changing your diets as we do? Um, I think with that, obviously, the Mediterranean diet is very much indigenous to the Mediterranean, whereas here, we in England have very much uh, adopted things from a variety of food cultures around the world. So our food culture is very much uh, an amalgamation of a lot of food cultures all kind of thrown together. And so we don't have that same consistency because of that, which I think makes it then hard to kind of translate that in that same sense. However, I think with that, if you are eating consistently the same things on a regular basis throughout the course of your life, perhaps there may be some in that. But that doesn't mean that you can't switch between cuisines as long as that is consistent. I don't see why, for example, if you regularly have a curry on a Monday night and you do that and then have something else on a Tuesday that isn't Indian, that if, without, if you do that every week over the course of many years, that's still consistent though, right? It's just not consistent in terms of food culture, but it is very much consistent, or cuisine, it's very much consistent though in the kinds of foods that you're eating. Um, I haven't actually come across anything particular in terms of that consistency. I mean, obviously the Mediterranean diet is definitely considered I mean, to be very beneficial. Because mm. I've heard the Mediterranean diet and spoken again and again, you know, it becomes like a story. But he said if we change basis of our food, he said it takes up to two generations to, to change into, uh, to, to settle in a different food country. <clears throat> and um, uh, that was uh, really quite, quite stunning. Second thing, we don't have a food culture in this country. Yeah. And that's it. So, and the third thing is that we pick up other people's food culture. Can, can, I, um, can I just interject, sorry, because we do have a couple of people who are also waiting for, but um, yes, let's, uh, if we can move on, then yeah. more people can ask questions. Hi, I just wanted to ask, um, I don't know what I've been Googling for this to keep coming up on my Facebook feed, but I've been marketed to various kinds of um, either genetic testing or regular blood testing, kind of like test your gut, stuff like Thrivia, Viome, I don't know if these are familiar companies to anyone else, but I was just wondering, is this another kind of way of trying to make us think that because it's scientific, it's going to unlock a key, is this just like another kind of thing to get our, our money's worth or is there actually a basis for this kind of genetic or regular blood testing for our diet? They're definitely trying to get your money. Um, your genetics can't tell you very much in terms of what you should and shouldn't eat, aside from there are some things like celiac disease which you can test for very easily. Um, but you can do that by going to your GP, you don't have to get a specific genetic test for that. Um, there's this idea, you know, by testing your microbiome and things like, it's tricky, like we, we have, like the microbiome and gut health is a very interesting emerging area of research. However, we don't know enough yet to be able to offer very personalized nutrition in that sense, in that area. It's something that we're very excited about for the future, 
But at this point in time, no, we can't really tell that kind of information. And a lot of the blood tests that you can, uh, you can ask for online are, do things like IgG testing, which basically all that tells you is uh, what immune markers has your body produced in response to the food you've already eaten. So it doesn't tell you what you're allergic to or intolerant to, it just says, what have you eaten? And so because people tend to eat, you know, a lot of people tend to eat uh, whole grains, a lot of people tend to eat, eat dairy and all that. So those things that people most commonly eat will also most commonly come up as intolerances. And in fact, uh, the group at the Merseyside Skeptic Society did a really interesting experiment. They took a number of like a random DNA samples, including one from a dog <laughs> and including two from the same person and sent them off to, to this, this company and they all came back with ridiculously long lists of things that they're apparently allergic to. The same person sent the same DNA twice and got different results back, which just shows to you just how unreliable it is. Also, they couldn't detect that it was a dog. Um, the, fact that they, the fact that they couldn't detect that it was a, the DNA from a dog is a little bit concerning and again suggests, to, suggests uh, significant unreliability. Uh, wouldn't trust it. If you are concerned you have an allergy or intolerance, go to your GP. Don't do some weird online stuff. So you asked uh, earlier, what is the opposite of uh, real food? And if I argue that the opposite of real food is engineered food, food that's made in a factory with a chemical engineer, and food that's optimized for taste and self-life, what would be your comment? All food is engineered in some way. All food, we, as humans, we have been changing what food looks like and what food tastes like ever since we started really cultivating it. Uh, if you look at what uh, wild bananas looked like, um, you know, was it hundreds of years ago? It was all seeds, hardly any flesh. Same for watermelons. Uh, wild strawberries were this big. Wild carrots were basically not not edible. We have consistently engineered and bred and changed our food supply constantly to, uh, to shape it according to what we wanted. Same with livestock. We've done that as humans consistently. We have been doing that since, since, since we've learned to, uh, to farm. This, all we are doing now is doing it in a much more specific way that has fewer, fewer side effects and we have much more control over. That is the only main difference and the fact that we're doing it in a lab rather than just randomly um, sticking bits of, you know, just like doing random, like throwing radiation at things or just like doing random crossbreeds and kind of saying, hey, let's see what comes up. We're doing that with a lot fewer risks and with a lot fewer errors and we're doing it with a lot more precision, which is arguably a good thing when you consider that we kind of need to feed a huge and a growing number of people. Uh, and yes, of course, we have made food to taste good. I think that's very understandable that we, why would we make food that doesn't taste good? No one would buy it. I find that concept quite strange, this idea that if something tastes that good, it must be bad for us. I feel like that's a very, that's a very Catholic way of looking at it. <laughs> if, 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 it, if, it if it's good, if it tastes good, it feels good, it must be bad. I find that concept quite strange because... I'm saying it has something inside. No, not necessarily. When I take a gun in my mouth, I know what um, I'd like to, I'd actually, I think, I feel like the question has been um, answered, but perhaps afterwards we can all yes, go to the pub. I'd like to add everything as a chemical. Uh, everything is a chemical. If you were to drink uh, pure H2O from a stream versus pure H2O that is a byproduct of a chemical reaction, your body would not be able to tell the difference in the slightest. We have things like E300 is ascorbic acid, is vitamin C. It's vitamin C. It's an E number, but that doesn't make it bad for you. 
we need to, I think, get away from this, this fear of chemicals when actually a lot of the time we actually, it, we should be leaning more towards those because artificial vanilla is so much better for the environment and better for the planet than natural vanilla, which if everyone were to use that, it would be, it would be wiped out pretty much in a matter of days. We can't rely on some of these natural things anymore because the demand is too high. And we can't just expect people to just suddenly get rid of it from the food supply because we've introduced it, we can't really, it would be unfair, it would be weird to kind of get rid of it. So we have to encourage in some ways this kind of, this, this leaning towards some artificial things because actually they are better for the environment and in actual fact they have no bearing on our health whatsoever. They are completely safe, otherwise they wouldn't be there in the first place. We've probably got time for two more questions. There's one down here and we'll take one at the front. Hi, so rather than calorie counting, and obsessing on good food and bad food. I'm trying to look at my macros, but I'm wondering, is that still subscribing to like diet culture? And do you know, I wonder whether you had any thoughts on whether like monitoring your macros is healthy or if that's still just another way of being unhealthy? I wouldn't see it as black and white as that. If you find it... Oh, so macros are macronutrients, so carbohydrates, fats, proteins. And when people say macro counting, they generally uh, are making sure that they eat a certain amount of calories per day, but within a certain percentage of different macronutrients, different ratios. Um, I think if you're an athlete, yeah, it's kind of a good thing. Uh, you probably need it. As um, your average person, uh, I honestly think it's unnecessary. I wouldn't say it's unhealthy. It's only unhealthy if it becomes obsessive and if it's taking up a huge amount of your time and you feel genuine uh, anxiety if you don't meet your macros. If you're able to have flexibility with that, and see it as a useful guideline to, uh, just in, in life, as a guideline, not a rule, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that and I wouldn't actively discourage you from that. Um, I think it can be useful in like short term sometimes for people to get an idea of what kind of a pattern of eating that works well for them and then take it away from the app and just start enjoying food without thinking about that in that same way. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's as black and white as healthy, unhealthy. I think as long as it's not obsessive, if it's not anxiety inducing, if it has flexibility built in, and if, it, if you are finding it enjoyable and helpful, you're okay so far. Right. Um, going back to um, the, the war, looking at the pictures and, and the film archive and the immediate post-war period when there was rationing, people were obviously very, were quite thin and not very healthy. But the last sort of 30 or 40 years, there's been a campaign for people to avoid fat in the food and so instead people have turned to carbohydrates and now people are, are sort of looking at you know is it carbohydrates that are causing people to uh, become uh, fat or obese is there anything in that or is it still you know a subject of research yeah this is an interesting one because the same people who tend to say like we were so wrong to demonize fats uh, we we're so wrong, so wrong to demonize one nutrient are the same people who are very actively demonizing sugar um, it's never as black and white as that. Um, there was some negativity towards fat, but for a considerable period of time now, we have not been encouraging low-fat diets for, through the government guidelines. We encourage a, uh, to limit saturated fats as a percentage of overall fat intake, which is absolutely not the same as limiting all fats, which people can do if it makes them feel good, but is absolutely not necessary. Um, also, we are not actively hugely encouraging people to eat sugar. Again, we have dietary guidelines that say to reduce our added sugar intake uh, as much as we can. So, and actually what we find is uh, our fat consumption has steadily, uh, st slightly increased over the course of the last 40 years. 
our protein intake has definitely gone up a bit and our sugar intake has actually been dropping for the last 30 years. We have less sugar in our food supply now and we are eating less sugar than we were 30 years ago. So to suggest that the reason we're getting fatter is because we're eating more sugar, the data actually suggests that that's, that's not the case. Uh, as always, something um, as complex as weight is going to be down to so much more than one specific nutrient. Uh, so it's not either or and it's definitely not helpful to demonize one particular nutrient in that way, I think. But it's an interesting narrative that's very much come about this idea that, you know, oh, it's, it's, all, it's all the fault of the carbs. It's really not, because whole grains and complex carbohydrates are kind of really good for us, especially because they have so much fiber in them. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think a little bit of sugar is totally fine. Um, I wouldn't actively encourage people to cut out all sugar because if you're eating a little bit of sugar, you can still enjoy so many uh, social and cultural aspects of food which would be uh, limited to you if you, weren't, if you weren't eating any sugar. Even just something like a birthday cake. Isn't it just so wonderful to be able to partake and share in that rather than saying, oh no, I can't because sugar. Um, I, feel, I think that's, that's sad. And you know what, I, if, if me eating some sugar is going to mean that I live a little shorter in my life, I don't care. I'd rather actually enjoy it and have, take a few years off my life and really enjoy the process and eat some things that I really want to eat, rather than getting to 80 and thinking, I wish I'd eaten more cake. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a fantastic place to end the evening. Thank you so much. Um, again, thank you for coming.